there are a few people here who perhaps have uh, strategically positioned themselves this morning, and they're anxiously awaiting my exposition of verse 14. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And they've been waiting all year for this one verse, and they've strategically placed themselves this morning for uh, let's talk about it and then let's give it a try. Um, And I'm sorry to disappoint. You'll have to work on that verse by yourself or perhaps with somebody else. Um, But this morning, instead, we're we're wrapping up a year long series here, uh, a year long really journey with the Apostle Peter. He's been our pastor for the last year as we've worked through his letter And he's been an excellent pastor. He's helped us in so many ways. And here he's coming to the close of his letter and he's giving a summary statement. He's trying to say, hey, this is basically what I've been trying to say for the last five chapters. And it's in verse 12. I have written briefly to you. And this is what I've been doing. I've been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So all along, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, I've been exhorting and I've been declaring that this, and when Peter says this, I think he means the the content of the entire letter. Everything I've been telling you is the grace of God. And so Wayne Grudem writes this comment about this verse, and listen carefully. He says, the entire Christian life is one of grace. Both the continual trust in saving grace and the continual obedience empowered by grace, which every Christian must have in order to stand firm, all is by grace. Let me say that one more time. The entire Christian life is one of grace, both the continual trust in saving grace and the continual obedience empowered by grace that every Christian must have in order to stand firm. And so that's what Peter's asking us to stand firm. And he wants us to stand firm. And he knows the only way for us to stand firm is to stand firm in grace, whether it's by our salvation or by our sanctification. Grace is at the center of your salvation. Grace is at the center of your sanctification. The, the true grace of God is the power which brings you from life, from death to life. And it's also the fuel that keeps your life moving forward. It's all by grace. So when you're dead and you come to life, you realize there's no way a dead man can get up. There's no way that we can be born again if it's not born by the grace of God. And so everybody understands that. But what Peter also is saying is I'm not just declaring that. I'm also exhorting you to live a life. In a certain way, and I'm helping, I'm trying to help you understand that's also by grace. It's all by grace. And so throughout the letter, Peter is exhorting and declaring. He's declaring, and in many of your translations, it might say he's testifying or he's witnessing. The primary role of the apostles to be, were to be the witnesses of what had, had happened. At the at the at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And this is where I want to look back at Acts chapter one, verse eight, Acts chapter one, verse eight. You'll remember this verse. Jesus is talking with the apostles and they're asking, you know, what's going to happen now that you've come back from the dead? And he says to them, 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You see, that's their primary role is to go out and declare something has happened, to declare a truth, to announce a truth. They're evangelists. They're, they're trumpeting something, saying this is what's happened, and we've been witnesses to it. And, of course, they're going to do that in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then in a very dramatic moment in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does come down as Jesus has, prop, has um, promised. And then these disciples, they speak in tongues. They speak in other known languages. They weren't known to them, but they were known to somebody else. And they go out and they start declaring this truth. And that's what we call Pentecost. And that's what's happening at that point. And understandably, the people who had come from all over the world to Jerusalem were confused by what was happening and what they were hearing. And some of them were even saying, I guess these guys have been drinking a little too much because they sure sound strange this morning. And then I think in at least one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 When the people are looking at what's happening and they say, what does this mean? Then Acts chapter 2, verse verse 14, Peter standing with the eleven. See, all these eleven who had been fleeing from Christ, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, just that picture, they're all standing together. Somebody saying, what does this mean? And these 11 men rise up to say, I'm going to declare now something to you. It's a very powerful moment. And Peter lifts up his voice and he dresses them and he says, I want to let this be known to you. And he gives this great sermon in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of it, it, 3,000 people come into the early church. It's a great moment. It's a great piece of church history. So now I want to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and help you recall how Peter begins his letter. So let's look at that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter is now declaring the same truth. He's doing it in his letter, and he starts his letter out by a declaration. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that it can never spoil, it can never perish, because God's keeping it in heaven for you. And then look at chapter 1, verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, the these Old Testament voices who spoke, and look at what they said. Peter says they spoke of, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was coming to you. I'm declaring something that I've seen, that I've been a witness of. But the Old Testament people, they've been saying grace is coming toward you. I'm I'm saying this is the grace, but they're saying, I know it's coming. And so he points back and says, he's basically saying, see, everything is pointing towards this moment. And this moment is the, the true grace of God. And so whether you're an Old Testament Prophet, you're pointing to grace. If you're a New Testament apostle like Peter, you're witnessing grace. If you're a preacher in a pulpit in 2013, you're pointing back to grace. Even if you're an angel in heaven, it says a few verses down, you're looking down and what are you longing to see? You're longing to see this incredible grace of God. Everything in all creation is looking to this one moment and saying, wow, this is the true 
grace of God Almighty. And so Peter is declaring that. Paul says it maybe a little differently. Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by what? Grace. It's by grace you've been saved. It's not of yourselves. It's not of any kind of work because we don't want anyone to boast. We want everyone to boast in the grace that God has shown us in Christ. So Peter begins with a declaration about the true grace of God. And perhaps there's somebody here that's a visitor this morning or you came with a friend and maybe you're just an inquirer into Christianity. You're wondering about the Bible. You're wondering about Christianity and what Peter wants you to know, what I want you to know, what we're both declaring today is that people are saved by grace alone. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he has done. You, you and I are reconciled to God, not through our efforts and our record, but through Jesus's efforts and his record. You could say that the Bible is, an, is not an instruction book on how to get to God. It's a declaration of how God is coming to you. See, that's a big difference. If we open up the Bible and we think, hey, this has just got some instructions for me and I'm coming to church to learn some sort of life tips. That's not what it's about. It's about God Almighty condescending and coming down, and He's racing towards you as a sinner. And when you discover it, you go, oh, it's by grace. I haven't done anything to deserve this kind of attraction by God Almighty. In fact, all the things I've done would make me think God's angry at me, and He's running away from me, or He's out to get me. But when you read the Bible, you understand it's a story of grace. It's a story of grace from right from the beginning all the way to the end. So part of what Peter is doing is declaration, but the most of his letter is exhortation. He's declaring something. He's saying something is true, but then he's going to exhort his people. This is his few congregations around Galatia. And they're this small house churches, mostly under very difficult circumstances. And so he understands as a pastor, he has to come in with this letter. and He's trying to encourage and he's trying to try to keep some wind in the sails of these people to to go forward. And so he spends a lot of his letter in exhortation. And this is the point of the letter that I think is most challenging, especially for uh, the believer. Here's just a sample of the things that Peter exhorts in me and in you. Chapter 1, verse 16, be holy because God is holy. One twenty-two. purify your soul and love others with a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 1, put away all hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Chapter 2.11, abstain from lust. 2.13, be subject to every human institution. 3.1, wives, be subject to your own husband. 3.7, husbands, work to understand your wife and lift her up. 3.17, be willing to suffer for doing good. 4.9, show hospitality and don't grumble about it. 5.6, humble yourselves and don't be anxious. See, that's just a sample. <laughs> Those are just the things he's trying to say. Hey, I want you to move in a particular direction. And I, and I understand it's going, to, it's going to be difficult. And I'm going to exhort you to move in that direction. And if you remember... 
uh, the picture that I had in my mind when I when I was talking about this was the show Hoarders. You remember this? And it, it, you, you, if you haven't seen the show, you're better off for not having seen it. You get dumber for having watched five minutes of this show. But what happens is somebody has what, what looks like a regular looking house, but then you go in it immediately, you know, there's just debris. And of course you look at it and go, it's just, I mean, it's all trash. But the problem is when you confront the hoarder, what does the hoarder think? Oh, this is valuable. I mean, you can't throw this away. I just got this or I had this for 25 years. And you think, you know, it's rat infested and you still want to keep it. And you have to try to say, hey, this isn't valuable. We need to throw this stuff out and we need to put valuable things in. And see, Peter understands that we're hoarders. When, when, When Christ comes into your life, you are a new creation. But in all the rooms of your heart and all the rooms of your mind, you know what you still have? Worldly debris. You have all this trash that you think, no, I've got to hold on to that. And we have all these things of debris that Peter understands. I've got to come in and I've got to exhort you to begin to shovel this stuff out and then put things that are really valuable in your life. Where we accumulate, we hoard lies and lust, half-truths and trivia, idols and ignorance, greed and gluttony, pride and prejudice, sloth, slander, rage, envy, ignorance, distractedness, forgetfulness, faulty perspective, inconsistency, dogmatism, anger, bitterness, jealousy, fear, anger, anxiety. Those are just a few of the things you and I hoard. And he says, yes, you have been born again, and that's by grace. But now there's some real work to do. You finally recognize it, and you think some of these things are valuable, and I'm going to have to pry your hands off of these things, and I'm going to shovel some of these things out and put these new valuable things in. And it takes a pastor, it takes a preacher to exhort you to move forward. And that's what Peter has spent most of his time doing. And then you'll notice then in chapter 1, verse 13, therefore, see, therefore, now that you've understood the declaration, you've taken hold of the gospel, or maybe the gospel has taken hold of you, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope on Christ. It's a pretty tall order. And we don't have time to review these things that I've listed, but... What I do want to focus in on and what I I want to draw your attention to, and I think this is really an important piece, especially for those here who are believers, is chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Peter understands that grace powered your salvation or was the power of your salvation And grace is also the fuel of your sanctification. Grace not only saved you, but it's also the fuel that keeps you moving forward. That's what he wants to help you see. I'm doing some declaring and I'm I'm doing some exhorting. But both of them are the true grace of God. They're they're coming by grace. I want you to see that. And that's an important thing that Peter wants us to understand. And I want to make a couple of statements or a couple of comments about that. And then I just want to end with some biblical examples. 
Okay, number one, I think that sometimes you might hear some person say this, a, a Christian person. They might say, well, once you're saved, then you go back to the law or you go back to the, the commands and they tell you how to live this new life in Christ. So, yes, you do get saved by grace, but sort of once you're saved, then you've got to find out how you, how you should live, right? I've got to know how I live. I, I know how I used to live. And I've got to have a new way of life, but I don't know what that way of life is. So somebody, something has got to give me some direction. And so you go back to commands. And, of course, at some degree, that's true. We can read that in 1 John 2, 3. We know that we have come to know Jesus if we obey his commands. So to some degree, yes, we do need to understand what the commands are, and then we need to move Towards them. So commands are critical. You remember even Jesus himself, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, okay, when he says that, you can hear, here comes a command, right? I'm going to tell you something, This, but I want you to live a different way. Command your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, the command provides direction. But I don't think the command provides the fuel to go in that direction. The command itself helps you understand, I need to stop just loving the people I love and hating the people I hate. I've actually got to love the people I love, and I've got to love the people I hate. I've got a new command. But how do I do that? That's the real question. And I think Peter's saying, you do that on the fuel of grace. You don't, the, the law itself is not fuel. It just gives you direction. But you and I need the fuel to know how to love the people that we hate. And we'll see from the Bible that that comes from grace. If grace ever loses center stage, in other words, if you, if you say, yeah, I got saved by grace, but now I'm living by the law and that becomes the fuel, then immediately you'll see legalism move in. Second thing you may may have heard, maybe you've thought this. There are probably some here who have. You, you genuinely come to Christ. You understand that Jesus paid for your sins. And he paid for them on the cross. But then you go on to thinking something like this, and this would be an error. My sins are forgiven, but now it's up to me to live a good life. See, I know, I know he forgave my sins and now I've got these new commands and, and now it's up to me. I've got to live this new life. Or, and I've heard this many times, well, you know, because of Christ, I get a do-over. And, you know, when you just hear that on the surface, you go, great, man, I need a do-over. Boy, do I ever need a do-over. Or you might say or hear or think to yourself, my salvation is based on grace, but my sanctification is based on my works. One sure sign of this way of thinking is this sort of nagging or internal need to keep giving your life to Christ over and over again. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a church or you, you, you've done this yourself, you just say, well, I gave my life to Christ when I was this old, but the do-over didn't look like it took. So, you know, a couple years later, I gave my life to Christ again. And 
You know, I've memorized a sinner's prayer because I've given my life to Christ 50 times in the last 10 years. And the reason you sort of stay in that circle is you think that that is just a do over. And you go, I, I'm not, I'm, I keep messing this up. I don't get very far before I need to go back and get Christ back in my life. And, you know, that's faulty thinking. See, either what either that way of thinking or the first way I described, it, it boils down to self-righteousness. It boils down to what you do. It's not really fueled by grace. And Peter's trying to come in and say that, that it, your sanctification is based on grace. Let me give you some biblical examples because you I, I may have lost you there, but I want you to. Understand that I'm not just making statements. I think you can see this very clearly in the Bible. First John chapter four, John says this. He gives this command. If anyone says I love God yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For if anyone who does not for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot God love God whom he has not seen. God has given us this command Love, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So you see, that's the command. That's the law. That's saying, you know, this is, this is a new direction. This is, you need to shovel out some things. You need to get this in your life. And when you just read that verse, it sounds very law driven. This is, this is what I'm saying. This is what you've got to do. But you probably know that the, before John states the law, he gives the fuel. First John 4. 19, we love because he first loved us. See, before he gives the command, he's going to say, I want to give you the fuel before I give you the direction. I'm going to lay down some pavement I want you to ride on. But I know that if I just give you the pavement, you don't have the fuel to go down this road. It's very difficult to love your brother, especially when they don't seem very lovable. And I know that, and so the first thing I want to do is I want to point you back to grace. I want you to know that you weren't very lovable. And despite that, he came for you. And as you remember that Christ came for you, that gives you the fuel to go towards people that aren't very lovable. Second, second biblical illustration, Galatians 2, 11. This is one of the most critical, maybe... Well, when I say the most critical and I say it five times, then they're all critical. But this is a uh, this is an important piece of New Testament early church history. Peter is still struggling with this whole idea of Gentiles coming into the church. I mean, he's had this vision. He's gone to Cornelius's house. You remember all this. But it's still there's it's just hard to get over the racial barriers that were presented. It's hard for us to understand them because we don't live back there. But I think we can understand just from our own history that a lot of times it's hard to get over racial barriers. And so Peter's struggling to get over this racial barrier. And whether it's part of that struggle and then part of fear, it's hard to know. But he gets in this church and he's having he's having meals with Gentiles. But then sort of the Jewish power brokers come in from Jerusalem. And when he sees them come in, he withdraws. In, a, in, in, in really just hypocrisy. And when he, when he withdraws, other people withdraw with him. And so it creates this fissure. And the apostle Paul comes in and he sees what's happening. And he confronts Peter 
face to face. Now imagine you've got Peter on one side and Paul on the other. This is a great chance for a church split right here. And Paul's going to confront Peter and he says, I confronted Peter face to face. And my question is, now how would you confront somebody in this sort of tender spot face to face? What would you bring in to help you? Would you bring in the law? Would you come to Peter and rightfully say, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. Stop it. He could have said that and he would have been right. But I think it's very telling to see what Paul actually says. And he says this, Peter, your conduct is not in step with the gospel. Do you see how that's just a totally diffusing way to say, Peter, before I before I really address your conduct, I want to address your relationship with Christ. You're not in step with the gospel. Do you you realize the barriers Jesus overcame to get to you? So so you can overcome the barriers between you and someone else, can't you? You see how how there's the law, but then we need to know, how do I do that? What's the fuel that's going to get me down this direction? And the Apostle John and Paul, they're always pointing back to grace. They're not just giving you... A law. Let me give you a couple more. Titus 2.11. Paul writes this. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What teaches me to say no to ungodliness? Grace. But you might think, because I thought this, the grace of God could actually make me want to say yes to ungodliness. Why? Well, I'm going to be forgiven. You ever done this in your mind? I mean, I know this is wrong, and but I've got a great Savior, and I'll just do it anyway and ask for grace at the, at the end. Maybe I'm the only sinner who thinks that way. Sometimes it feels like this grace is, is so free that I can just do whatever I want, and actually the grace sort of makes me want to keep doing ungodly things because I, I know God is going to forgive me. I, that can be a way of thinking. And Paul says, no, no. The grace of God teaches you to say no because you understand the grace is free, but it's not cheap. See, if you just say, I know God's going to forgive me, then you have an idea of cheap grace, not free grace. Free grace costly grace to somebody. And when you begin to find yourself moving towards sin and saying, I guess God's going to forgive me, then what you need to do is you need to look back to Christ. You need to look back to the cross and say, He's spilling His blood for you and let that motivate you to move in the right direction. So the grace of God actually helps you have self-control. It helps you to say no to ungodliness. It can't just be a list of rules or or regulations. I can't say, well, these are the ten things I can't do today. I maybe should not do them, but the fuel in order to not do them is going to be the grace of God. 
One, one last just verse, 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, I, I'm born again because of grace. I, I, everything I could say about myself would be because of grace. And, and this grace was not without its, an effect, its effect. It had an effect on me. How do you know if somebody really has the true grace of God? It has an effect on their lives. Well, what effect did it have, Paul? Well, he gives you the answer. I worked harder than all of them. All of the other apostles. It's a big statement. Then he just pauses and says, well, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. You see what Paul's doing? Everything I am is by grace. And then I worked my butt off. And then I realized it was all by grace. See, see, everything's by grace. The, the calling from death to life is by grace. The commitment, the, the character development, the forward movement is by grace. It's all by grace. And Peter wants us to understand that so that we can stand firm. If you don't understand that, then you become shaky. And he's saying, I want you to understand the grace of God. And when you really understand the grace of God and you understand what he's done for you, then, then you can move forward. You can stand firm. And it may be that some of you all here are on shaky terms in some form or fashion. Maybe you've sort of misbelieved some or you, you believe some misconception about grace or about God or how your life's supposed to work after you become a Christian. I want you to hear the declaration that it's by grace that you are saved. It's not by what you do. It's by what he's done. And secondly, in order to run down the pavement of Christianity, you have to have the fuel, which is grace. It's looking back to the cross and allowing that to direct and give you fuel for your conduct. And Jesus knows these people are going to be like sheep. They're always going to start wandering away. So I need to somehow have something that helps them remember the grace of God. And that's the table. So you come again and you remember, okay, okay. I thought it was me and I got way off and I got sideways in my thinking, but I'm coming back and I'm saying it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that I'm coming to the table. It's the grace of God that I'm able to keep moving forward. So our, our invitation is all you who have been saved by grace. Come and remember and receive the grace of God. If you're here and you haven't, then then I would ask you just to stay seated and think. What 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 is it I'm thinking about? What am I living my life on? What's fueling my life? What's going to get me to God? It's never going to be yourself. It's always going to be grace. So Jesus understood on the night he was betrayed. He took the cup and he poured out the wine and said, you know, this is the blood of a new covenant. Come and and drink. And this is my body. It's not just bread. It's my body. It's going to be given for you. Come and take and, and do these things and remember me. Remember grace. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we come uh, this morning and we're just we're just taking some very common elements here that you've provided for us and we're remembering something very uncommon. And that is the grace of God. And so I truly pray for those people here who are trying to live on their own fuel, that they would see that they can't make it very far. They, they can't even keep the things that they want to keep, forget the things that you would want them to keep. And I pray for the disciples that are here, just like Peter would, exhorting them to live a certain way, but exhorting them with the fuel of grace. And may you use these elements to refuel your people. For your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The music will play, and when you're prepared.